it did take me a while to figure out that, you know, I have to be a transformational leader instead of a transactional leader. And you can't manage from a position of power. You have to manage from a position of motivation and appeal. And that's what really works. And then the second biggest thing that I learned is when do you manage and when do you lead? I think if you ask most people, like, they don't really know. And most people are managers. They're not really good leaders. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. What I was thinking was, what would John McMahon be on the other side of a negotiation with a salesperson? Personally, I'm terrible at buying cars. I cannot buy a car to save my life. And everyone says, Juben, you must be a great negotiator. Yeah. You must be really good. Like you're a sales guy and I'm the worst because all I do is put myself in the other guy's shoes and I'm like, I don't have the heart. Yeah. I, I'm just not good yeah. at it. What about you? I think it, it may not just be cars, but it's a bunch of other stuff. When you used to get cold calls all the time, right? Especially as like a CRO, you get a lot of cold calls. You're a sucker for a really good salesperson and you're annoyed at really bad salespeople. I'm still annoyed today because the stuff I get on LinkedIn, people don't obviously have never not even looked at my background and they're trying to sell me something. And I'm like, really? Or recruiters that are reaching out to me for a job like as a second line manager. I'm like, really? <laughs> Did you look at my profile? You know, like that's so annoying. Because it's annoying to the sales profession, but the people that are really good and come at you and ask questions and they have stories and they understand, you know, exactly something about you and what you're doing in your job and all those types of things. That's when it's really powerful. And then you're kind of a sucker for it. You know, speaking of Chris Degnan, I was with him. He came to our holiday party, the KP holiday party in the Valley two weeks ago. And I introduced him to a former CRO that became a CEO and sold his company. And the CEO is a big Chris Stagnan fan and said, Chris, you are CEO material. You got it. And he's like, dude, I have no f***ing interest in taking yeah. Frank Schaub or, so any, or any other CEO. Why? I got me thinking, that must have been the party lines for you. People must have told you that all the time. All the time. Like, John, you're going to go do your fifth CRO job? Like, yeah. really? Like, when I thought about doing the six, some of my friends came to me and said, Mac, like they call me Mac, Mac, why are you going to do that? What are you going to get out of it? What are you crazy? And then I would tell other people and they would just become CRO. And then they call me and say, Hey, I'm a brand new CRO working for a brand new CEO. Can you come and help us out and keep us off the guardrails? You know, so that's really how I started getting into like advising. And then, and then what happened was I'd be the only independent board member on the board and I only took equity. I wouldn't take any cash. cash. Because some of the things that you're going to talk to the CEO about, especially if it's a tech CEO, which 90% of them are, they don't know if that's going to work. And it's going to take a while for it to work. If you take cash, they're looking at the watch and say, well, I just talked to this guy for an hour. I paid him a lot of money, but I didn't really get anything out of it. But when you take 
equity only, then all of a sudden they realize after they spend time with you, like, hey, you're the only person in here that's really on my side. The advice you give is really good. So why don't you become a board member? Because it's really you and me against these venture capitalists, which really a lot of them are just MBAs and they don't really have any operating experience. And at the end of the day, they're going to get their money back. But the only time you make money is if I make money. So come on on this side. And that's when I started going on some boards. Was the sixth Mongo? Was the sixth? No, I didn't do a sixth. But you thought about the the one that you were thinking about. Or was it just generally, am I going to get back on the saddle? Well, you get bombarded with offers. And what you have to do is you have to go through this period where you have to separate yourself from your ego and your identity. Maybe more your identity. You're identified, you know, as like a brother, a husband, a dad, all those different roles. But you're also in your identity. You know, you're the CRO. You've been the CRO for a long period of time. And now you have to get away from that identity when other people are calling you and trying to convince you to come back. You have to say no for a long period of time until you can separate yourself from that's no longer one of my roles. And that takes a while. Do you worry about this idea of losing your relevance? At some point, has that dissipated? This idea that because you're Tom Brady retired, Mm -hmm. that somehow people don't give a shit about you anymore. I was talking to Dave at Mongo about this and I thought he was really honest in his self-reflection that part of his drive is that it gives him a lot and it keeps him relevant and relevance in the sense that it keeps him in the flow of the action, you know, maybe not even just your ego, but also just feeling like you're doing the hard thing. I don't know. Are we recording this? Yeah, this is all. I just run. (laughs) We are. I just run. I just run. (laughs) Okay, I didn't know that. I just run. Okay. No, I don't know that it it affects my relevance because I don't care if I'm really relevant. Right now, all I care about is whether or not I'm giving back to people. Really, that's the only reason I wrote the book. It's the only reason. I don't make any money off the book. You don't make make a penny off the podcast. Mm -hmm. So I really do it to kind of keep my noodle sharp and help other people. If at some point... I'm rendered irrelevant. Okay, it's time for me to, you know, ride into the sunset and do something else. One thing that struck me when I was researching your background is you didn't, you haven't had a full-time role, correct me if I'm wrong, since almost 2012. Yeah, right. You're, I mean. Like 10 years. And I'm not going to call you old. I am not going to sit here and call you. You're still a young cat and you're more jacked than most people that I sit across from. (laughs) I think you have plenty of energy. Tons. 10 years. Why did you stop? Why didn't you go for more full-time? I know you're on the board of basically every iconic software company that we've had in the, in the Bay Area, but after BMC, why didn't you go for more? Well, like we talked about, do you really need to do it for a sixth time? Or is there something else you can do with your life? You know, Is there a way to give back to people and take a break and also give back more to your family and friends too, which... When you're on the road as a CRO, everybody wants a piece of you. You're on the road all the time. You travel into all these different countries. You live in 90-day increments. That's all it is, is 90-day increments. I think I wanted to get out of that grind. It does become a grind after a while, especially if you've done it as many years as I did. How long did it take for you to be okay with this feeling that no one's emailing you in the mornings? You know, How long was the period of, did you have a period of, anxiety or freaking out from the day you left BMC 
That's that part where I had to get rid of part of my identity as a CRO. I consciously went into that period and said no to all the offers that came about because I wanted to separate myself from this identity of, or as one of my roles as CRO. I Mm -hmm. wanted to get rid of that. I didn't want that anymore. And I wanted to try to do something else with my life. Mm -hmm. So was it difficult? Yeah, it's difficult because when people call you, they have really good opportunities. Yeah. They're very convincing. And you start to think, and who could I hire? It plays to your ego. You know you could do it. It plays to your identity. And you have to basically say no. And you have to learn to walk away. There's, there is a period of time. It probably took me six to nine months to get through that period. Six to nine. Yeah, I'm sure it did. And- do you have kids, family? Yeah, I got kids. I got a son and a daughter. Yeah. What did your kids think of this version of you that was home, you know, not traveling, not on the phone? Was that how well, was Well, they that? were off to college and stuff. So they saw me when they were home from college. They saw me a lot more, you know, than yeah. than they normally had seen me. But yeah. they were a little older and already off to college. Yeah. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New York City until I was about 10, and then I grew up in New Jersey. So I did all my high, junior high and high school years in, in New Jersey. And when you were growing up, was the conversation at the dinner table for you, was it achievement-oriented? What was conversation like at your dinner table? Mm, quiet, because my dad was, you know, he was the foreman for Otis Elevator in New York, putting in a lot of the big buildings like the Twin Towers and some of the other buildings. Now, my dad never even went to junior high school, right? His mom died when he was born. His dad was an alcoholic, left him and his brother on the streets in New York City to fend for themselves. They lived in abandoned buildings, foster homes, things like that. My dad was a man of like few words. And it was either, you know, you're going to get it done, whatever I tell you to get done, and you're not going to whine or cry about it. And that's just the way it is. Yeah, you know, I think I learned a lot from that. I think it's paid off with a lot of persistence. If there's one characteristic that I have, it's persistence. That's how I just keep coming at you. I'm not going to let go of something, especially if I want it. I'm not going to let go. Do you find that you're able to release that energy, that persistent energy that you have? Have you been able to channel that in other ways outside of your career? Because- oh, yeah. You know, I've done crazy things like ridden across the United States on my bicycle, you know, ride across South Africa, ride across Costa Rica. At one point in time, you know, I actually raced bicycles, not rode them or went in some charity ride, but actually raced bikes. When I want to get rid of a bunch of energy, I find myself either on the bike, in the gym, doing something to burn off a bunch of energy. And when you were operating full-time, Did you have this level of discipline on how you structured your workouts, your days? Yeah, absolutely. I would get up at 10 minutes to five every morning and either go to the gym or if it was in the summertime and I was in town, I would ride my bike to work. So I might ride 20 miles to work, take a shower at work, work the entire day and then ride back in the dark 20 miles. So I'd get 40 miles in every day. Sometimes if I started a little later, I might get try to get 50 or 60 in before I went to work. You've always been this way yeah. around um, physical discipline. Yes. Why? Drive some of my friends crazy. I don't know. It's something that I just enjoy it. And I actually told myself early on in life, like, 
it needs to be in my operating procedure, even my daily operating procedure, even like just brushing your teeth. Like I have to find a way to work out. Now, do I work out seven days a week? No, I'll typically work out like six. Maybe one day I go do yoga or something, but I do something to almost every day to burn off energy and feel good about myself. Yeah, I'm the same way. The way that I describe it is sometimes my energy turns into anxious energy, you know? Yes. And the only way I figured out how to burn off, because I feel like there's good energy and actually anxiety. And those two things in, in my stomach feel similar. And the only way that I found to burn out the anxiety is sweat. Yes. It's the only way that I have right. figured out how to release some of the not good fire right. in my belly. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? Oh, absolutely. Does that yeah. feel like it makes sense? Yeah. To if you? there's a day where I don't work out, what I'll do is I'll go in the steam room or the sauna and get up a good sweat. I actually have a cold dip being no delivered way. this this week, but I had one up in I have one up in Rhode Island and then I jump in the cold dip also. If you miss one. If you miss a workout or two in a row, I don't know, you're traveling. I know yeah. it happens rarely, but if you do, what are the voices in your head? Do you get down on yourself? I don't get down on myself, but I have a hard time sleeping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think something happens when you, your body's saying, okay, well, how come, why are we going to bed right now? And you still have all this energy, you know? So I find myself tossing and turning for mm -hmm. like an hour or so before I fall asleep when I don't work out. It's, I'm very aware of it. Yeah. But the nights that I work out really hard and had a really long day, boom, I'm out like a light. And if you don't get it in the morning, it's not happening? No, I'll try to squeeze it in. But, you know, when you have kids and you have work and you're traveling, or even if you're not traveling, but you have kids, you have to get up really early in the morning. For me, I was already working out 10 to 5. And that was a time when I felt like I could get a good enough workout in, shower, eat, say hi to the kids and, and get off to work. It's just something that you have to do. Would I try to get it in at night? It's pretty difficult after you work all day and then you come mm -hmm. home and now you see your wife and kids and now you're going to say, hey, you know, I got to go work so, yeah, out yeah. for an hour and a half. That doesn't really work, especially when you're the CRO because, you know, you're coming, you're not coming home at five o'clock. You know, you're coming home at seven thirty, eight o'clock. Is there anything else in your daily operating rhythm? Read. Every day. If I get up, first thing I'm doing is like checking out the Wall Street Journal and stuff like that, looking all the, everything that I can to understand what's going on in the world. Might have CNBC in the background, the finance channel in the background, you know? Yeah, but when you were in the flow, you were checking your email first thing, right? Yeah. Actually, you know, when you're in the flow and you, let's say you get up and you check your email, a lot of times you might have to make a call to Europe because they're six hours ahead of you, right? And sometimes at night, you might be calling Asia Pack, you know, because their time zone. Yeah. So that's what I mean, you know, as a CRO and you got worldwide responsibilities, it's almost like you're never off. Even if you're traveling, you're in Japan, an issue comes up, you can call back to the CEO, right? Okay, let's think about it. I'm going to bed. You hang the phone up. And when I wake up, I'll call you again and tell you, ask you what you were thinking. You're never off. Mm -hmm. See what I mean? From yeah. the time you put the phone down at yeah. night yeah. in Japan, let's say, fall asleep, you wake up, and the first thing you do is making a phone call to the CEO. Okay, which way are we going on this one? You had time to think about it. Let's go. But was that work to you? By the time number five came around, did it start to feel like work? Or has it always felt like work? Like, what was the, 
How did you relate? It never felt like work for me. I think in the world there's positive energy and there's negative energy. Mm. So if I'm working really hard, but I feel like I'm being developed and I'm growing as a human being, I'm making a lot of progress. I might work 16, 18 hour days and I'm tired, but I have positive energy about it. So I'll give you an example. One time I got acquired by a bigger company. I won't say which one it is. I got acquired. I came home one day at five o'clock. My wife looked at me and said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. She said, well, why are you home? Are you sick? And I said, no, I'm not sick. So why are you home? I said, because these guys take the energy out of me. I'm not making sales calls. I'm not traveling. I'm really only working maybe seven, eight hours a day. But I'm in meetings all the time. And all I'm doing is listening to these guys talk. And they're not really talking about anything relevant to helping the salespeople on our sales force get better, become more productive. So I'm just drained. I have no energy. And that's the negative energy, right? When you're not doing what you want to do, you don't feel like you're developing. You're not growing. You're not working towards a goal. You could be working six or seven hours or three hours, and it's just draining. Mm -hmm. How much of the decision to hang it up after five was family-related? Yeah, it was family-related. My wife told me, like, you're never here, you know? I'm a mistress. You're married to your job, you know? So how'd that did it hit you between the eyes or did you know it the whole time? No, it punched me in the gut hard, punched me in the gut hard. You kind of know that you're not around a lot, but at the same time, you know, you're working towards a goal for not only yourself, but for your wife and your kids. Right. And to hear that you're not here anymore. And, you know, I feel like a mistress that really hits you in the gut. So I decided that was a big part of me saying, I don't want to do this anymore. How much were you on the road? <laughs> One time my wife took, she found one of these oh God. calendars, right? That were where you just used to handwrite stuff before, you know, laptops and stuff. She took it and threw it at me and I picked it up. She goes, take a look in there. Japan, Germany, Italy, Netherlands, Boston, California, you know, every freaking week, every week, week in, week out. I was blown away by it. You didn't even realize you don't really realize it because you're in the moment. You're in what you need to do. You're passionate about it. You have a goal and you're out there trying to make sales calls to help everybody. So I really never realized how much I was truly traveling. And so from that point, how long did it take to? Yeah, it took those six. It, it took me like, well, then I went and I quit. You did. I quit. Yeah. So that I quit was like a week later. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. Yeah. That plus I felt like what I was, I had been acquired and I was at BMC and I felt like I made the sales force twice as productive. We took productivity from 1.1 to 2.2 million per person. And I felt like now the rest of the company needed to be transformed and it wasn't being transformed. So the rest of the company was literally keeping a cap or a lid on the productivity of the salespeople. For instance, we had to have this team called Best Practices. Best Practices was a team of like three ex-first line and second line managers with a team of ex-sales reps that we would put in that the sales force could then take orders, give to the best practices people just to try to get it through order processing. That's how bad the back end systems and processes were. All of those people 
should have been in sales and not in some fake organization called best practices just to try to jam orders through order processing because it was so difficult. So really the rest of the company was starting to keep a lid on the productivity of the sales force. And I felt like, okay, this is all I can do because I'm not being helped by the rest of the company right now. What Carl Eschenbach did when he left Sequoia to go back to be the CEO of Workday, he was at Sequoia for six years. Mm-hmm. Good life. I was on the board with him at Snowflake. Yeah. yeah. Good life. Yeah. So you know Carl. Yeah. The way he related back to me was like, Jubin, I was going fucking crazy every day. I just couldn't admit it to myself. Mm. You know, and he made the decision for his wife and his family as well. And eventually, you know, the lights went out in his eyes and he talked to his wife and what he did with Workday was he kind of negotiated a package deal that if, if he does this, she's part of the deal. <laughs> right. Good move. <laughs> did that ever cross like uh No, I felt like, you know, like you had the, I you had the juice earlier. to do it. Yeah, I had the juice to do it for sure. Probably could do it again right now, yeah. but that's not really what I wanted to do. Like we said, you know, do we really want to do it for, you know, six times? Yeah. Does that really make sense? Or is there something else you can do? Something, other things you can learn. Can you give back to other people? Can you help them get what they want? You know, I've always been a believer of if you help enough other people get what they want, you'll get what you want. Are you still with your... No, not married, divorced. And how much of that do you think has to do with... My work life? Yeah. hundred percent. Well, probably, you know, maybe 80, 80 percent. And if you could But do- it was the catalyst. For 100% sure. 100% was the catalyst. And then, you know, basically we could have been much better, both of us, at communicating what we were feeling and how it was dragging on the relationship for sure. Yeah. Isn't it ironic in some way that maybe the communication was the breakdown there, yet you take so much pride in the way that you talk about communicating within organizations? Yeah, terrible. But guys are not great at communicators no, in relationships. Not. Come on. No, we're not. I've tried to talk about my feelings with some of my friends and I mean they literally can't talk about it right well and you're like a boston guy you know yeah. and men typically <laughs> don't have the words that the women have women sit around after like going to yoga and they sit in starbucks or something and they tr- talk about their emotions and yeah. they have all the right words for all that stuff yeah try talking about your emotions with another guy yeah and actually under- try to get the right words you just don't have them so when you do try to communicate them sometimes with a woman you find that they're like well, that's not how you say that. And I say, well, hold on a second. You know, I am trying to communicate right now. <laughs> God, one time my girlfriend gave me an emotion wheel and it was, you know, on the outside were all the emotions that basically I knew how to describe. I'm frustrated. I'm anxious. Yes. I'm, you know, whatever. Like there's probably five or six that I basically bucket everything into. And then below that, it was just a concentric circle of more specific emotions. Oh, and I'm pretty like, cool. God, that's a much more precise way of, yes. of describing how I yes. actually feel. I just don't have those tools. You don't have the words, right? <laughs> and then, you know, we talked a little bit about how I grew up and the way you grew up was no one wants to hear it. No one wants to hear your shit. No one wants to hear you cry or moan or any of that stuff. Take your emotions, stick them in a jar and bury them down, right? So that's basically what you, what you do. And that's what a lot of, if you stereotype, it's what a lot of men do. When I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to cry. My dad wouldn't, you know, he's German and Persian. We don't cry type thing. And it actually makes me sad now because I can't 
really cry. Even really sad things in my life. In fact, the only times I cry are like really dumb things, if that makes sense. Like a YouTube video of something that just like kind of gets me right in the heart. Mm. But outside of that, deaths and family and stuff, I just can't do it. And um, that makes me sad. Yeah. What gets me, and I do cry, I bawl like a baby if anything's happening to a child. I see anything that's like where a child gets hurt and I just totally lose it. Do you think that has to do with you putting yourself as kind of that helpless child? No, I just think it's more so, it's, on, it's so, so unfair. Yeah. yeah. So unfair. So, yeah. so unfortunate that it just really makes me break down. Or yeah. if I think about how much I love my kids, I cry then also. I love them so much. Do you think you had to do it the way that you did it in order to achieve the results that you did? And if so. Do what? Do what? Work. The way that I work? Yeah, the, with the intensity and yeah. the rigor, the calendar. It's easy for you now in your nice house in Naples to be like, I wish I moderated it back. You know, I wish I integrated my family more into these types of things. But the reality is like the feeling that you had was that you're fighting for your family. Yes. Yeah. And so how do you reconcile those things? Mm. Maybe I'm still trying to reconcile them, mm. but- as a CRO, you live in a tough life. You know, it sounds like you, you know, we talk about how you are really measured every 90 days. But if you really look at the calendar, there's about 61 or 62 days to turn a bigger number, right? If you take 90 days, which is basically 12 weeks, and you subtract out just 24 days for weekends, you throw in a couple holidays every 90 days, and you're down to like 61 or 62 days, you have to turn a much bigger number. That's not a lot of time. So there's a lot of pressure there. And maybe the only way in which I knew how to do things was, again, because I was very persistent. I wasn't really the smartest person in the room. I wasn't the most gifted person in the room. I wasn't the best presenter in the room. I wasn't the most charismatic person in the room. I knew what I was good at and I knew what I needed help with and how to surround myself with leaders that could do things that I couldn't do. I think that was a big skill of mine. So it's the only way that I really knew how to do things. And then discipline around things like the sales process and things like that. And maybe because I wasn't the smartest person, it took me a while to figure things out. Maybe it took me longer to learn those things and understand the right way to do things and then be able to help coach and develop people to do the things that I had learned. And I, so I don't know if I would ever do it differently. I don't know if I was capable of doing it differently. I was, as I grew as a CRO, you start to learn what works, what doesn't work, how to coach people, how to motivate people, how to lead people, how to transform people, not have like a transactional leadership style, but have a transformational leadership style. And so it was easier as I, as I grew, but in the beginning, maybe the first CRO job I had, you know, you're still trying to find your sea legs. It's hard. Are your kids in sales? My daughter is, and my son's a sales, he's a recruiter of salespeople. No way. Yeah. Yeah. John Doerr at KP has this, he was a salesperson and he has this thing around how he believes that sales is like one of the highest callings. You strike me a little bit like that. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think it is. I mean, if you think about how many people, there's no sales degrees at the universities. More and more universities are starting to have like a sales degree. But at the end of the day, when you think about the number of people that are in sales versus, you know, there's a lot of people that are in sales, but there's no real formal training. No one's really telling them exactly how to, how to get it done. They didn't go to school for that. So you have to learn it on the job. So you need people that have been experienced to help coach and develop people on how to actually sell and like, especially enterprise software. You might be able to sell some commodity software or some B2C stuff, but you're not, without really being schooled in a sales process, you're never really going to be able to sell big deals into the enterprise. If you were teaching, let's just live in a hypothetical land for a second. Yeah. If you were teaching a sales class at, I don't know, some university, and there was 100 kids in the class. I'm just making this up, so bear with okay. me. And there was 100 <laughs> kids in the class. Yeah. Do you think with a pretty high confidence interval, you could ask those kids about their life, about their upbringing, about some inherent sets of qualities inside of them, and be pretty damn right about who you think will be successful or good in sales or not. Absolutely, yeah. So when I was recruiting, I basically would divide at a high level people into their skills, their knowledge, their experience, and their characteristics. And if you think about it, most people look at a resume and talk to people, and they're basically interviewing the person to the resume. But the resume only tells them about that experience. It might say that they might have some knowledge or domain experience because of what they sold, but it doesn't really tell you a lot of their skills. And it tells you nothing about their characteristics. So I always felt like interviewing to a resume was a crazy thing to do. It's almost like deciding to go to a resort only because you looked at a brochure online. You don't really understand everything about it. The photographs look good and then you show up and you realize, <laughs> you know, what happened here. So the biggest part is the characteristics. So to answer your question, yes, that's really where I would spend. I'd take a resume, put it down and interview people, especially for the first half an hour, only on their characteristics. Why? Because that's the game changer. Why is it the game changer? If somebody's really smart, they're going to pick up the knowledge, Right out of the womb smart, a lot of brain power, they're going to pick up any knowledge that you give them. If they have what I call a PhD, persistence, heart, and desire, they're going to learn the skills. And the skills are the most toughest thing to learn. Like right now, I might be knowledgeable about how to play hockey because I'm such a hockey fanatic, but I can't take a slap shot from the blue line. That's not going to happen. That skill mm -hmm. is never going to happen. So... Skills are hard to develop and you need a PhD to be able to develop them because they're things that happen with lots of repetitions. If you're going to be good at golf, you're going to be good at throwing darts, you're going to be good at bowling. I don't care what it is. You're going to have to do thousands and thousands of repetitions before you're going to get good. So I've always wanted people that were intelligent to pick up the knowledge, have a PhD to pick up the skills. And then I like people that are coachable and adaptable. Sometimes people say, I want somebody that's coachable. Okay, I'll take someone that's coachable, but they now have to adapt just because I coach them and they're coachable and they're agreeing with everything that I say. It doesn't mean that they're actually going to change. And when you're in a startup, 
every year, sometimes every quarter, you feel like, oh my gosh, we're a different company. There's different demands on us. It's a different product. We're now calling on different types of customers. We have to change our messaging. We have to redo the sales process. And if you don't have people that are smart and then are coachable and willing to adapt and pick up new skills and new learning things about the sales process or whatever it might be, they're never going to stay with you for a long period of time. So then you only hold on to certain people for one or two years and they might've been skilled and highly intelligent or highly knowledgeable at one point at the company. And then you look at them 18 months later and you're like, the person's a dinosaur. They haven't changed. You know, I have to get rid of them. To answer your question, yes, if I could ask all those questions that I asked in an interview to understand the characteristics of the person, I could pretty much tell you who's going to be successful and who's not going to be successful. And how many people, this is a stupid question, but do you ever think about like, have you ever gotten everyone in the McMahon? No. Come on, dude, you got to fucking do that. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. Wouldn't that be fun? It would be fun. Have them here. You have plenty of space. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just you here right now. It is just me here yeah, right now. Yeah. yeah. Can I answer your question that I didn't answer earlier of like, Jubin, why are you coming? You're right. It's not easy. Rhode Island wasn't easy. I canceled on you once and I'm sorry. And I can't believe I did that. And I hate doing that. Well, with the trip you just made in the Northeast, Rhode Island would have been easy <laughs> for you. That's right. And Naples wasn't easy. My first time here. I go back to like when your wife was looking at your calendar, she probably was asking you like, why are you in person? Why are you going to Japan? And maybe that makes sense or not. But for me, the relationship is what matters. That's why I do this. It's not necessarily for the marketing and the stories and all that. I I care about the learning and, and meeting folks like you, spending time with them. And I think seeing the whites of someone's eyes Mm. matters. Definitely. I think it matters. And I think it's kind of a lost before I, walk in the door or if someone else is coming to meet me in person they're already telling me something that they care that they really care mm-hmm. and that you're important and by the way that's when i was saying i couldn't get down the street because i right. was blocked and my pet peeve is being late and stuff it's because i want to show through my actions that i that i care yeah one of the things that if you talk to anyone that's worked for you or within your orbit that they'll tell you is that john cares He really gives a shit. And so as I even go through and think about like, could you have done it differently? It's like, well, this is how you show you care by showing up and being with people, spending time with them, coaching them, taking their call, doing things that most people just aren't willing to do. That takes time. Yeah. That in fact, in many ways is hard to even rationalize. It's hard to justify some cases when you're sitting in an airport or I have a layover through Houston today. Or I'm it's like, canceled. Exactly. Canceled. Exactly. You're sitting there. And those are, that's always when I think about it, you know? <laughs> right. You're sitting there thinking, man, I could do this differently. But I don't know if there's another way. Well, it's the caring part, as you described. There's another part, which is, and I'll come back to caring. The other part is... You have to understand if you're the CRO and there's multiple layers below you, you think you might understand what's really going on in the field and the issues that the salespeople are facing. And maybe that funneled up through first line, second line, third line, fourth line managers. 
But the only way that I really knew how to do it was to actually be out in the field with the salespeople. And now you can tell me anything I want to hear that you think I want to hear. But now I see it with my own two eyes. I hear it with my ears. And now I know what's actually going on. And you learn a lot about people. So you learn a lot about the managers that that are in that territory. You learn a lot about the reps that are in that territory because not only making the sales calls, but you're typically going back to the office afterwards and meeting all the people and having dinner with them and everything. And you get a sense of what's really going on. So the reason that's important, and I'm coming back to the caring part, is if you really care about people, you have to make them competent. It's the old teach a man how to fish versus fishing for them, right? So a lot of times when I would go out to the Bay Area and people would say, hey, could you come and join our board or be an advisor and stuff? And I'm just using the Bay Area mm-hmm. as a classic example. Us. Yeah, go ahead. Just dunk on us, John. Don't roll we have, you know, in the conversation with the CEO, we have a really great culture. I was like, really? Tell me about it. Well, let me give you a tour. And they show me the bean bags and the espresso machine and the foosball tables and the ping pong tables and, and the beer taps and all that stuff. And they come back and say, so don't we have a great culture? And I'd say, I don't know. They go, what do you mean you don't know? Like, I took you on the tour and everything. Well, I saw the culture signs on your walls. Uh-huh. I see the foosball tables and the ping pong tables and the beer taps, but that doesn't mean you have a good culture. And to me, I always thought that a great culture is when you're taking people and you're helping to develop them and get them to a level of competence that they never thought that they could get to. And that's how you show you care. If I take Jubin, who thinks that he's at this level, and I tell him, look, Jubin, you've been at this level for nine months. I have faith in you. People around you believe that you need to be at the next level, but you're not moving. And here's what we need to do to train you and develop you and get you to the next level. And here's what I'm willing to do to get you to that level if you're willing to put the work in. And when I get Jubin to that level and he didn't believe he could get to that level, he's not leaving me. And I showed that I care about him. It's not because of bean bags and foosball tables and all that crap. It's because you're actually making somebody competent. That's how you show you care. That's a good culture where you're developing people, training people, promoting people. They're all growing. They're not leaving you. Does that make sense to you? It does, but... Oh, we got a butt. J-Mac. Can I call you J-Mac? I've heard people call you that. I just thought it was a fucking electric nickname. Johnny Mac, J-Mac, do whatever you want to call me. Incredible nickname. Just don't call me late for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Johnny Mac, CRO number one, didn't probably have the ability to coach in the same way that he did on round five. True. How are you showing that you care through teaching when you don't, you're figuring it all out on your own along the way too? Yeah. In one, I was probably traveling more than I ever was. I was traveling way more than I did when I was doing three, four, or five. So I think I was trying to show that I cared there, and I was trying to understand what was going on in the ground, on the ground. And then we were putting together training and enablement programs to help people. Because if you start to see, if you travel enough, you start to see the same problems in the sales process. And then you could start to say, it's obvious to me 
that my people are getting stuck at this step or this stage of the sales process and I have to put something in, get something into training or enablement to help them get through that step or that stage in the sales process. Hearing you talk about it like this, it makes me think of great product CEOs who are going all the way to the mat on the product, meaning I just take Parker from Rippling. My team's going to kill me because I always talk about Parker. Incredible CEO. Rippling is a payroll software company. doesn't matter. They have about 2,000 employees. They're a $10 billion valuation company right now. He approves every expense report in the company, every single one. And the point of that is because he's deep. He needs to understand exactly the problem. Dave from Mongo, I got to imagine, is the exact same way. goes deep goes all the way down to maybe the IC on the engineering team or whatever. And I think that when you're at the the level that you all are, you're not hearing it real unless you go to the mat on these things. And, and hearing you talk about it evokes that for me. Like this idea that there's no way you're going to get the ground truth of what's actually happening unless you're in the field. Yeah. A great analogy for me is like a hockey coach. I don't know if you're a hockey fan, but... I'm a Bay Area guy, you know, You're a not Bay really, Area not guy, really. so you don't really look <laughs> Don't go down to see the San Jose Sharks. No. A lot of people don't know this, but there's a line change. There's four lines in hockey, four lines of forwards. You have a center, a left wing, and a right wing, right? And every 45 seconds, there's a line change. Players jump over the boards, and another. there's another, you know, three people that hop out as forwards. 45 seconds. That coach is watching. He's intimate with the players, very intimate in their skill and their knowledge of the game. There's a play that they're supposed to execute. So it's no different than a step in the sales process. He knows whether or not they executed that play flawlessly. Were they in the position where they were supposed to be to accept the puck? Were they able to take the puck and catch it on their stick? And were they able to you know, execute to skate to a certain area of the ice and then pass it to their teammate. So he knows all that stuff and he's so intimate with them. He could tell after 45 seconds whether or not they did it or not. And if Jubin didn't do it when I sent them on the ice, what they do, what a hockey coach does during the game is they promote and demote people on the bench. So Jubin might've started the game as a first line center or first line left wing. But if Jubin goes out there for two line shifts and he doesn't do, he's not doing what I need him to do, Jubin, you're now demoted to line three and I'm taking somebody from line three and putting him up on line one. Now, every player on the bench knows that Jubin's been demoted and somebody's been promoted to the first line. The person that's getting promoted, guess what they're doing? That's now their opportunity to take your position. So they're going to go out there and do everything they can to execute that play flawlessly. But it gives Jubin, who's now on line three, and maybe even has to sit a shift, gives him a lot of time to think about what'd you do right? What'd you do wrong? What do you need to do the next time you get out there on that shift, right? And I don't think that's any different than coaching salespeople. Like you have to truly understand, you can't treat people, everybody, everyone like they're cookie cutter. You have to treat them where you are intimate with their skills, their knowledge, their strengths, weaknesses, insecurities, goals, motivations, all that stuff. When, when you know the person, then you kind of understand 
why or how come they're not executing that play. And then you get to be able to talk to them, coach them and develop them so that they can be a much better player. And that's kind of how I've always thought about coaching and motivating people. Now, some people don't like the discipline. People that have been around with me that have worked for me three, four or five companies. When I say, why do you, why are you coming back to work for me? Well, John, I know what the rules are when I'm working for you. And I know I'm going to grow and I know I'm going to develop. And I know there's discipline and I know that you treat everybody fairly. But so many other organizations don't have any of that. It's very Belichick-y, isn't it? I guess you could say that. It's probably anybody that's a really good coach and is really putting a lot of work into trying to understand their players and, and coach and develop them to get to the next level. Of the thousands of people that you've hired, how many do you think, maybe just approximate as a percentage, have you fired? Can I tell you why I ask? Yeah. I think most people listening will think, well, shit, I just need to get really good at identifying PhD and grit and a few of these things. And, right. you know, I got to coach them up and give them a good product. And, and, that's, and that's a lot harder than it sounds. It, it is. And actually, that's, and a lot of people don't want to take the time to be intimate with people. You know, they, get, they hop in the car to go on a sales call. And what are they doing? They're looking at their phones. But they're not really getting to understand the account executive. Mm-hmm. Like the questions you're asking me. Where'd you grow up? How many brothers and sisters do you have? What do you like to do? You know, what about your dad, your mom, all that type of stuff? They're not asking those questions. Mm-hmm. They're really not interested in, in the other person. Well, and to make matters worse, after you do all of this coaching, all of this deep work, sometimes you become friends with these people. Most sure. of the time. Yeah. It's even harder to fire them. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's actually the hardest part of the whole equation. And I think where culture is set is who you fire and who you promote. And the promoting part is so easy. You know, that's the fun, rah, rah, have a beer with them, give them a raise, give them a title. But the firing, I bet a lot of people think Johnny Max nailed it. He gets 95% of his hires right. No. I have a feeling that's not true at all. No. I think even Jack Welch, you know, former CEO of GE said if if you hire 8 out of 10 A players, you're that's a grand slam. So I'd say the 20 25% of the people that I hired probably made mistakes or I didn't make a mistake to my earlier point. At that period of time, they were really good. But as the company grew and developed and the product changed and the sales process changed and the customers changed, became more knowledgeable, two years later, now I probably had to let them go because they didn't, they weren't coachable and adaptable. So I don't know what percentage we throw into that you sure. know, barrel saying, okay, you did hire the right person for the time. Two years later, couldn't keep growing. They decided that they weren't growing anymore. That's a personal decision, right? Because yeah. you can try to train people and develop them constantly, but if they're not, coachable or they're coachable but not adaptable you there's very little you can do about that you can have really tough conversations with people especially because to your point if you really care about them many people listening to this have been in the mcmahon hot seat where i take you and i put you in a chair and we're going to talk about some things and they get really nervous but we have a whole hour and i made sure they had an hour on their schedule and i had an hour on my schedule even for reps yeah 
because I care about them. And I'll sit there and say, hey, what's going on? What do you mean? And they think they're getting fired or something. But <laughs> eventually we get down to what's really going on with them. Because sometimes it could be that there's a personal issue going on and they're not really talking about it. But when I have had people talk about the reason I'm not changing is like, I have a personal issue at home or I'm sick or something's going on in my personal life. Well, that's completely different than somebody that has nothing going on, but they're just unwilling to change. When I'm interviewing a sales leader, I'm like, dude, why the f*** are you doing this? Seriously. Like the product's probably not going to work and you're going to get fired because you're the sales leader. Yeah. This company's probably going to die. Right. Realistically, statistically. Yes. And you're going to have a big miss on your resume. Yeah. You see that a lot. You know why? So many people call me, I need your advice. So they talk about one company where it's a huge opportunity, huge market, market's growing, product's really good. But the title is, you know, VP of the West. And then they tell me about another company. And when they describe it, it's not a really good opportunity. The product's not really selling. They've already been through a CRO, but they get the CRO title. And I tell them, don't confuse opportunity with position. And what do most of the people do? Their ego tells them to go for the position. And they go to the (laughs) position, and then 18 months to two years later, they're calling you back, telling you, yeah, I made a mistake. Okay, but you had a great title. And you got a lot of stock, but it's not worth anything. You should have taken the opportunity, been with a better team, grown as an individual, and eventually you'll get the title anyway. When you do an interview, do you go straight to shop? Do you start talking shop immediately? You mean when I'm, if I was interviewing a salesperson if or you, a sales If you leader? and I were interviewing, yeah. would you soften me up first before you got straight to it? Or are you more inclined to just get straight to it? As a CRO, you have the opportunity to just get to it because you have the title and they've already seen three or four of your you know, leaders. When you're a first line manager, you have to basically do a little bit of both. You have to do a little bit of selling and a little bit of interviewing, right? So I think it changes as you go up the ladder. But typically I like to get right to it, but I go on the personal side, like I said, because I'm really more interested in your characteristics than I am in some of the jobs you had and those types of things that are on the resume. Does it strike you how most of the companies that you've been advising or CEOs that talk to you have actually no idea how to interview, qualify anybody on the go-to-market side? Yeah, I mean, well, a lot By the way, of- do you disagree with that? No, I think there's a lot of tech CEOs, unfortunately, they may have a good product, but they're clueless about how to interview somebody that is the right person for that stage of their company. So I see a lot of tech CEOs that are enamored because somebody worked at Oracle or ServiceNow, and they take somebody from a big company and then they stick them in this little startup and their skill set just doesn't match. These people have never scrounged for resources. They never had to fight to get what they want. They don't have scars of experience on their backs. You know, when they came to ServiceNow or Oracle, it was a multi-billion dollar company. They had tons of resources, didn't have to scrounge for everything. They didn't have to determine what the ideal customer profile was and who to recruit and what the profile of that person to recruit is and, and understand all those types of things because everything was already set for them. Have you ever been topped? Five CROs, has there ever been a sales leader that's been hired on top of you? No. 
Doesn't that? Why? Well, I'll give you an example. Okay. You've been a part of some pretty high growth tech companies. Mm-hmm. Okay. I had Bob Muglia on the show. Okay. I know Bob. I know you know good Bob. Guy. Yeah, really great good guy. guy. I love Bob. I went to his house. By Such the way. a nice guy. I went to his house in Seattle. Yeah. Speaking of going to people's houses, he has a data center in his basement. <laughs> and if this is not the most Bob story ever. Yeah. And he's given me a tour of the house. And basically all he wanted to show me was how he racked and stacked the servers in his data center. <laughs> and he's going through. It's like a mad scientist down yes. there. Yes, yes. Anyway, what a great guy. Fantastic guy. And what Bob was telling me, because we were talking about Chris, talk about another guy that has not been topped. No, love Chris Dagan. Incredibly, yeah. incredibly. And he's like, look, yeah, I got some pressure. I got some pressure from the board, maybe some pressure from you. I don't know, he didn't say you, but maybe from you as well. No, you mean Bob about Chris? Yes. No, I was the supporter of Chris the entire way. You know, as the thing started to really start to scale, that would be a question from Bob and even the rest of the board every time. They look at me they go to you, and obviously. say, do you think that Chris is stepping up? And I'd always say, yes. Why? Why do you think that he you know, should keep his job? And I'd say, because what I look for is intangible, incremental growth in somebody every time I see them. And every time I would talk to Chris, every time I'd interface with Chris, I'd see tangible, incremental growth. And the thing about Chris is he's very coachable and extremely adaptable. He'd take coaching feedback, and then what you turn around, the next time you see Chris, he's already adapted. Very few people can do that as the thing continues to scale, and Chris was really good at that, and that's why I always supported that he'd stay in that job. Is that what you mean by demonstrable incremental growth? Yes, yes. Chris, in the early days, we don't talk that much now, but in the early days, we were talking all the time. And he'd say, what about this? And what about that? Yeah, Chris, sometimes, you that? you're too big time now. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> you're too, you're too, yeah. yeah, he is big time yeah, right, right now. Chris. And then there'd be some things that I would see because of my experience that Chris didn't see. And I'd say, hey, this is something that you need to pay attention to. Because otherwise, if you don't pay attention to it, they're going to come and get you. Mm-hmm. So, and him and I have had those conversations, especially a lot in the early days. And like I said, Chris is very coachable and extremely adaptable. If you really say... Certainly he's smart, really smart. He's skilled. But if you say what characteristics have really allowed Chris to continue to scale and transition, it's the coachability and adaptability. Not to make this too much about Chris, but can I go one layer deeper of why I think he's that way? Yeah, whatever you want. I actually think there's probably something more fundamental to Chris, which is that he's potentially the most self-aware person that I've ever met. He is very aware. And I think that his self-awareness is what allows him to be so adaptable and coachable. Because I think that when you say something to him about an area of opportunity, he's either already thought about it or he immediately internalizes it Mm -hmm. and wants to get better. Yes. And I think that he is really unique in that Venn diagram of how others talk about you outside of the room and what you think people say about you. I think that the gap between those two things is very narrow for Chris. And I think that's why he tends to have this adaptable, coachable nature. Anyway, that's my observation. No, I think you're right. But that's part of it. When somebody's coaching you on something, don't you have to then look in the mirror at some point and say, 
they're right or they could be right. And I need to now adapt. And if you look in the mirror and you're not self-aware to your point and you say, no, that's bullshit. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm smarter than them and I don't need to do that. That's a problem, right? So there is some sort of self-awareness check when you look in the mirror to say, yeah, I do need to adapt and I'm willing to adapt. I'm persistent enough to adapt because it does take some persistence and determination to adapt. And to your other point, a lot of times when I would put someone in the hot seat, my favorite question was, now Jubin, when you're not around, what's the book on you? And they go, well, what do you mean? Well, if we had a book on what other people think about Jubin and we open it up, Mm. what does it say? And you'd be surprised, to your point, that a lot of people, there's a big gap between the way in which they think they're perceived versus the way in which others perceive them. That can be problematic, especially for sales leaders. Have you ever asked a CEO that question? Either if that's Dave at Mongo, well, I guess previously it played Logic. Dave and I have had many good discussions, yeah. Or at the board of Snowflake or Lacework or ThoughtSpot, or I mean, Classdoor, Apti, you name it. Are you willing to go to a CEO, maybe it's different from the board perspective, and ask them the question of, hey, what do you think the book is on you? Have you done that before? I've never done that with the CEO. Not that I can remember. I mean, we've had discussions on things that I think they need to change, and here's why. But I've never had the open book discussion on, you know, why not? The, the way in. Hmm. It's a good question. Probably could have. Yeah. You strike me as someone that's not afraid to have that conversation. No, I'm not. In fact, even now, I get appointed as the person that has to have the tough discussion. That's what with I mean. The CEO when no one else wants to do it. That's what I mean. Yeah. I don't know. I just never had that, that, and I know that, that same it, book discussion with the CEO. I might have told them, look, this is where you're falling down and you need to do something about it. But I never had the whole open book discussion. Is there a piece of feedback that you've gotten in your career that hit you between the eyes? Is there a parallel to the feedback that your wife gave you professionally? Is there something where in a moment in time, what you thought the book said and what the book really said really changed the trajectory of how you behaved as a leader? I can't remember if I got it from somebody, but one of the biggest things that hit me was early on as a manager, maybe even before I was a CRO, I was a very transactional leader, meaning I used my position of power to get what I wanted from my people. And the reason that that's really bad is because you're basically telling people to do things in exchange for them not being penalized and so they could get a reward of, let's say, a commission check. And I found out pretty quickly that I need to be a transformational leader. Like I have to go back to like what you and I spoke about before. We have to help help understand them more, understand that they're all completely different, the people that I'm managing. And I have to, and they all have different strengths and weaknesses, motivations, fears, insecurities, all that. And I have to try to get the best out of them. And if I transform them and make them really good, then I'll be good. It's almost like when somebody has kids, 
When you're single, it's all about you. It's your calendar. It's what you want to eat, when you want to eat, what you want to do, when you want to do it, all of that stuff. Then you get married and you have kids. And what you learn is it's not about you anymore. It's only about those kids. You know, when do they get up? When do they go to school? What do they do? What do they like to eat? What hobbies? What, when are their sports going to be played? What's happening after school tonight? The whole calendar, your whole life is more revolves more about them. It did take me a while to figure out that, you know, I have to be a transformational leader instead of a transactional leader. And you can't manage from a position of power. You have to manage from a position of motivation and appeal. And that's what really works. And then the second biggest thing that I learned is when do you manage and when do you lead? I think if you ask most people, like, they don't really know. And most people are managers. They're not really good leaders. And that's the next thing that I really had to learn. Is there defining features or characteristics of these companies that you've been a part of that tend to win? Meaning, Blade Logic was acquired by BMC. Wasn't always a winner. Not when you joined. Yeah. Certainly was not. Yeah. You know, all the other ones, Apti, Glassdoor, Mongo, Sprinkler, Sumo, Snowflake, Sumo. Yeah. If you could pull on any common threads, number one, does that exist? Is there any unique qualities to all of these huge companies from either your position as a board member or as the CRO? And maybe the answer is it doesn't exist. But I wonder, yeah, how do you think about it? It exists. So when I'm asked to go you know, can you come in here and consult or can you be a board member? I'll go speak to the CEO. And usually what I'm doing is I'm asking the three whys. I'll tell you what the three whys are, but I mask those three whys, you know, with different words. But basically is why does the customer have to buy? And what that really talks to is, is this a nice to have or is this a need to have? Like the products today and the companies that are going to fail that are burning money right now and are going to fail and not get another round, they're going to take a tremendous down round, or the companies that have a nice to have. You know, they were selling that three years ago in a boom market, but they're not selling any of that stuff now because it's a nice to have. The company doesn't have to have it. It's not solving a real major pain. So you want something that is a real product that's going to solve a real big pain point for the customer. If it's not solving a really big pain point for the customer, then they don't have to buy. The next thing you want to know is, why do they have to buy from you? And if the CEO is not explaining that there's a one-to-one match between their secret sauce, their competitive differentiation against each and every one of those pain points that they outlined, if there's not that alignment, then they're not really going to solve the pain. That means that the customer is going to buy something else from another competitor that has a better alignment of product differentiation to that pain point. And then the last one is, why do they have to do it now? Can't they do it another way? Can't they wait? And I really want to understand those three questions. And when you can understand those three questions and they really do have to buy They have to buy from this company because the product is truly differentiated and they have to do it now because they can't wait because it's costing their company so much money. If they wait, 
that's a company that I'm interested in. Then I might go to the bigger questions like what's the market size? What's the market growth? Why now? Why now in this market? Has something changed? Has it, did the internet come about? Did the cloud come about? Did AI come about? All those major shifts in technology that can displace a lot of the competitors. And are we making a brand new market here? Or is this something that's, you know, like in Snowflake's case, there was already like five or six different physical data warehouses, but now they came along with a cloud data warehouse. So there was already a huge market there and they were going to make it even a bigger market because now they're going to make it so much more appealing to so many other different companies. Because before Snowflake, it was really only, you know, the top executives in a company that were accessing the data warehouse. I look for those types of things and I think there is a trend. There is a line in there where it, you know, whether you were Jody at, at AppD or Dave at MongoDB or Frank Bob at Snowflake, there was definitive answers to those three whys. Hearing your line of questioning when you talk to a CEO reminds me very much of a venture capitalist. Again, going back to Carl, there's no way that Sequoia did not come to you and say, you know, Dude, I, you know, you could be pretty good at this. There's, yeah, yeah. Did, did, I had people for sure, right? For or Sutter yeah. Hill. I mean, forget yeah. about it. The, yeah. the list goes on. Yeah. If KP didn't, we should have. Why not that? That's a good question. I have had many venture capitalists tell me, like, if we look at your track record, you might be one might one have one of the best portfolios of anybody. You know, when you look at Snowflake and Mongo and Sprinkler and and app dynamics and you know many of the other ones i was approached but i just felt like i didn't want to really work for somebody else at the time i got tired of working for other people i wanted to work for me at the end of the day that's what it really came down to you're not on the board of snowflake anymore no you're off for maybe planning on getting off all the big boards that you're yeah, on yeah i'm off the big boards yeah you're i really don't boards. like the public boards so much why not it's boring yeah, it's a chore for you. It's a chore. I don't learn anything, and I'm not really helping influence anything. Like when Snowflake was early, as an example, or Mongo was early, or any of these co- early companies that I'm on the board of, I can really have a huge impact and help steer those companies. But I can't steer, I can't help so much the bigger companies. I really can't. To me, that's a very positive signal that you have actually extracted the ego from the work. Yes, right. Otherwise, you'd stay on. Right. Like, I just joined a company called Astronomer last week. It's a raw startup. It's, you know, a couple million bucks. Mm -hmm. I do that. Astronomer, Sigma, Observe, and um, Luminary. Another one that's like pre-product. You know, like when I joined Snowflake, it was two years before they had a product. It It wasn't like I joined them and they were already selling stuff. Two years before they had a product. I mean, Chris was just trying to sell, just get some people to buy a couple beta copies. It was early. And I like that. I think that's so much more exciting because there's so many more things to decide on. You know, the ideal customer profile. What are the differentiators? And, you know, all these different things that go into making sure that you get the thing pointed in the right direction. That's so much more exciting and intellectually challenging. Dude, are you... Sure, you're done. I mean this with all sincerity. Yeah. 
why don't you go back? Why? Do you get a feeling like I, I yeah, want to go back? I, I'll be, I mean, for lack of better words, I feel like you're wasting talent. Yeah. That's how I feel. I just feel like the world deserves great operators to continue operating while they have the juice. And hour and a half in, I am one million percent mm. sure that you have the juice. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. Yeah. And I don't think that you're the guy that really loves and finds purpose in golfing every day. No, I don't go- golf every day. Plus, I suck at it. And you so. don't even have a boat. What are we no, doing? Come on, dude. You got to work on your retirement living. You're, it's it's my funny pro- that I have I have money, but and everybody asks, well, well, do you drive like a sports car? No. Do you have a boat? No. Do you do you go to ex- you exotic and you places? Don't even have no, a boat. I don't. <laughs> I mean, a lot of those things don't really turn me on. But that's my you know? point. And I think that they're short-lived. I remember one time I went golfing with a guy who was a former CEO of a company I worked for, and we got acquired by a big company. And on every hole, he told me, like, a new condo he bought, new motorcycles he bought, new cars he bought, new house he bought, new this he bought. When I got home, my wife asked me, well, how did it go with him? And I said, I think he's very unhappy. She said, well, what do you mean? I said, He's always buying something new, something more materialistic. And he probably gets a buzz off of it for a couple of weeks. Then he buys something else. He's not really looking at himself and trying to figure out what really makes him happy. So he seems so unhappy to me. So to me, you know, having a boat, a sports car, all that type of stuff doesn't really make me happier. That's maybe why I don't have those things. But you're kind of making my original point. Yeah. None of the other things, the boards, the boats, it's about the action. Yeah. So why are you playing make-believe in the action? Like this, like... (laughs) Make-believe? Yeah, like you're... I am helping a lot of people. I know, but you're not in the driver's seat. No, I'm not. If I did it this time, I'd go back, I'd go be a CEO. I'm not going to be a CEO. A hundred percent. And that's actually what I was going to say, which is that there is a world where you could not be told what to do. Mm-hmm. get challenged in a way that I think would be really exciting and invigorating for you and use the energy that you have. You're not going to have this energy forever. Really? I, mean, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. In which case, then you better get back right. to operating. I have a ton do. of energy. Yeah. Sometimes some of my friends think that I'm like juicing or they think that I'm on something because I have so much energy. Yeah, I have a problem at the office because my energy is sometimes translated through the volume of my voice. I get excited. I get very easily excited. Yeah. And then I get loud. I can see that. Everybody in the office can hear me, you know, and it's like, (laughs) oh, great, Juven's here, you know? Yeah. I was with um, Shlomo Kramer. Yeah. Do you know Shlomo? I met him one time, yeah. Nobody knows this guy. He's the only CEO that I know that has founded three companies and will take them all to IPO. Right. He was like the CEO of Imperva. A buddy of mine, Jim Drill, worked for him. He was the founder of Imperva and the CEO. He was the founder of um, Checkpoint. He's now the founder and CEO of a company called Cato Networks that's going up against Zscaler. He's going to take this company public. He's an incredible human. He's an incredible... Yeah. And, and he's... Really smart. O- he's older than you. Mm-hmm. And the way that he was talking to me about this being his last run was almost like it should be his last run. Mm. Like this idea of like, dude, I'm old. How much more do I have to give? And he's running out of gas. Why would I do? But he's not. Mm. It reminds me of you where he's not running out of gas. He just this feeling that like at this point in life, why am I doing it again? 
And my point to him, which is the same point that, that I'm trying to make to you is like, well, maybe like you're a really rare thing. Your calling in this world is to do this. And maybe you should go fulfill that for as long as you can. It's almost like he had this dread of retirement because he would lose the juice. Yeah. He would lose that juice. And so he anyway. loses his identity. He loses that ego separation we talked about also. But the thing is, I don't know if it's ego related because he is not doing it for the money. Who starts three companies? I mean, who does so that? So difficult. Who does that? Yeah. So he says that basically the day after these companies go public or whatever, he's already thinking about the next one. And the reason he does that is because he wants there to be as little time from his peak to his trough because he wants to be grounded. Dave Cancel, who I was just talking to, he announced on the show, I mean, I don't think it's an announcement, but he's starting his sixth company. I didn't know that. He told me this week, he's starting his sixth company. His sixth company. He's been retired for a year. For the first six months, he was like pretty happy. And he's been losing his mind for six months because that's his juice. That is his juice. And he's doing the art scene in New York and he's doing all this and he's like, this is not what I'm about. I love being in it. Anyway, maybe this is just more my plea to you of, I think you have it. I think the world deserves a little bit more of Johnny Mac in the saddle. <laughs> Thank you. Driving it home. Well, maybe one more time, but maybe more. Yeah. When you think about the idea of doing it, what scares you? What worries you? Nothing scares me about doing it. You just think that there's other things that you can do in life to help people. Like I do the podcast. I wrote the book. I'm on five startup boards. Right there, I feel like I'm doing a lot to help a lot of people. A lot more than I would if I just went into one singular company. Yeah. You know? That makes sense That's the me. way I look at it. So nothing really scares me about it. Like I said, I'm super persistent. So if I jumped into something, I would just put everything I had behind it. That's the only way that I know how to do it. Do you think that maybe there's this thing of like, you know, the cost, you know, that you're an all in person. Yeah, that's part of the problem probably too. Yeah. Maybe that is a fear. Yeah. It's just like, you know, in. you're not going to be able to have your cake and eat it too. Sitting in this house on the laptop, zooming in, <laughs> no. you just know that's not me. that the way that you are yeah. is going to take a bite out of you. Yes. Would that be fair? Yeah. I have to travel. I have to be in front of people. I have to be with the salespeople. Yeah. Do you think you have it in you to be a road warrior again? I mean, seriously, if you're getting off some boards because of the travel. You know? Yeah. Well, it wasn't, it's not just the travel. It's that, you know, I think I did my time, like at Snowflake, I was there 10 years, you know, two That's years amazing. before we even had a product. So I did my time. Mm -hmm. I don't think I was really having any new impact. Yeah. Frank's not learning anything from me. <laughs> so by the way, hopefully you don't think I'm coming down your street. What's I'm that? not coming down your street. I hope you don't feel that way. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying I don't to, feel that okay, way. Good, good. No, so what impact was I having? I wasn't having any real impact. So it's time for me to go. Now can I have impact on some of those those five different small companies? Yes, a hundred percent. I'm not having any impact on MongoDB anymore. I'm not having any impact on Snowflake. So why do it? Do you think that um, Brady couldn't stop playing 
He's played forever because he felt like he knew the answers to the test by the end of it. And he was like, this is so fun. This is the best part of my career at the end when he knew all the answers. He knew the routes. Maybe there's actually some new version of fun from all this experience that you've had and the time away. And when you're coming back, it's really, really only for the love of it. Right. It won't be the grind. No. Right. That might. That's a good point. That's that a really might, good point. You know? Yeah. That might give your perspectives. It's not so existential. Yes. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's not like life or death. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, be able to pay the house payment or not your pay family. The house payment. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's food for thought. Food for thought. Thanks, Jubin. Food Appreciate for thought. that. Food for thought. Is there shitty advice that when you hear it, maybe in boards or others, that you're like the hair on your arm stands up? Yes. <laughs> Can you give me some? That you hate. Well, so we don't have to name any names or anything or any groups of people, but there's plenty of times where I'll hear people that give advice to the CEO that where they believe everything in the world is cookie cutter. So they'll say, hey, this worked over here at company A, so you have to do that here at company B. But company A had a small product, the average deal size was 10K. They sold low in the enterprise where they didn't ever even sold in the enterprise. All that type of stuff worked for them. And then they're trying to take that same advice to this poor tech CEO that knows nothing about sales and says, you have to do the same thing. And I think that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. You have a $250,000 ASP. You're calling on VPs. You're calling on you know, the VP of IT. These people are calling on something else. You have a different use case than they do. You have different differentiators than they do. Taking cookie cutter advice from what works at one startup and saying that, that will work at the other startups is just foolish. And actually, if the world worked that way, it'd be pretty freaking boring. Right. Mm -hmm. So the reason that I like going into these startups is if I'm in five different startups, those are five different markets, five different ideal customer profiles, five different types of use cases, mm -hmm. five different of everything. And you have to figure out and thread the needle between all of those things to figure out the best route to market. It's not cookie cutter. If it was cookie cutter, we'd all be bored. But I'm always frustrated by people that are on the board that think that things are cookie cutter. Doesn't it remind you over the last few years, like when everyone, especially venture capitalists, were pushing this idea of PLG? This, yeah. Every company. There's needed, always a new buzzword. Every company yeah. needed to right. be a PLG. Yeah. And then you ask them like, well, what does PLG mean to you? You yeah. know, and then you ask why or how three times. And, and you, you get up, different answers from everybody, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. That happened to me when, you know, the internet came about and then I was, um, changing jobs and I would go to a bunch of venture capitalists and meet them and they'd say to me, John, first of all, enterprise sales is dead. You're an enterprise salesperson. It's dead. People are going to buy everything off the internet and there's just no opportunity for you. And I thought to myself, really? You're telling me that somebody's going to look at the internet and they're going to buy some C-level person and they're going to buy millions of dollars of software off the internet or from some 25-year-old kid on inside sales. I don't believe it. And it never happened. Now enterprise sales is still huge. 
But you hear that a lot of times too, like PLG, that's going to displace everything. PLG has a place, but it has a place for certain products too. It doesn't have a place for every product. Have you traditionally worked well or bad with marketing? Bad with marketing in the beginning and good with marketing towards the end or definitely at the end. Bad with marketing in the beginning was pre-internet. You know, they would have marketing brochures and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I would basically hold up a marketing brochure in front of the sales force and say, this is the new marketing brochure. This is 100% proof that they have no idea what we sell. And I'd throw it in the trash can because they were doing their own thing, you know, and they thought that they were doing the right thing. And sales was calling on customers and they knew or thought they knew what the right thing to do was. Now, as more and more tools came about and demand generation, you know, products like HubSpot and some of those products, it created more of a bond and more of talking points between marketing and, mm-hmm. and sales. You know, when I had all those things underneath me, then what I would basically also do is pay the marketing person based upon sales. Yeah, so you tied so them to your quota. I told them straight to my quota. They weren't paid completely different than the salesperson was paid. They only got paid when I got paid. Mm-hmm. So therefore, they knew exactly what to do. How can I make that sales force more productive? Am I doing the right things? They'd be asking themselves that question every single day because they knew they only get paid when I get paid. If, and I think that helped create a bond also. Denise and Chris have a great. Amazing bond. Those two presented the board meetings together. Those two are working together very closely all the time. It's really impressive what they've created together. Really impressive. I don't want to steal their shine, but they're writing a book together. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I've been interviewed for part of it. Maybe I'm stealing their shine. Yeah, um, maybe you are. <laughs> maybe I'm stealing. Sorry, Chris. Can we play make-believe for one more second? Yeah. And maybe make-believe is a reality here, but let's just imagine you're the CEO of a company. Yeah. And now you're managing an engineering and product team. Mm-hmm. How would you adapt your leadership style to manage that team? Because it's funny, right now, what most CEOs are doing are adapting their management style to sales and marketing teams, right? Most of these engineers become CEOs. They know how to lead and hire engineers and product teams and not the inverse. For you, it might be the inverse. So I wonder, how would you think about changing your style to meet people where they are? Yeah, you have to meet them where they are. I would try to understand the issues as good as I can. And I'm sure that they could bluff me if they wanted to. But one thing that they can't really hide from is, okay, well, what's coming out at the next release? When is that going to happen? And then constantly talking to them on a weekly basis as to where we are in progressing towards that release. And from that, trying to understand the issues and trying to understand whether or not I'm getting straightforward feedback, or are they trying to game me or game the system? If there's one thing that I'm pretty good at is it's pretty hard for you to hide from me. So (laughs) even though I may not know, my gut is really good. I think that I've gotten pretty far on my intuition. Even when I used to go in and sales calls, what I love to do is go around the room. If there's 10 people in the room, go around and shake their hands, look them in the eyes. And then I would basically try to determine who they were like at handshake, at handshake and looking in the eyes. The eyes are really important. And I would basically say to myself, this is a potential champion. This person's here because they were told to be here. This next person doesn't give a shit. This person could be the economic buyer. 
you know, this person could be my champion. And then from with that, customers, with customers, uh-huh. and then sit down, have the meeting and see how my gut was with respect to the way in which it rolled out. Yeah. And so many times I'd be right. The one person I was almost always right with was that person's the enemy. They don't want us in this account, right? Because those people have a hard time shaking your hand and looking you directly in the eye. So intuition would help me in helping to manage an engineering mm-hmm. team. And at the end of the day, it's about getting great leaders around you. So I would be looking for the best leader that I could find and making sure that they were hiring the best leaders underneath them. Your problems go away. Like if things are starting to surface towards you, is the one thing I learned like as a CRO. If things are starting to surface towards you, it means that somebody below you is really not doing their job the way it should be done. And then when you replace the leader, all of a sudden all that stuff goes away. If you're finding that yourself, you are constantly having to put out fires for people underneath you, you probably have the wrong leader. Now you get the right leader and all of a sudden you're not dealing with those issues anymore. Do you size people up still? Like uh, maybe yeah, you still do that? Yeah. Like when I came to the door, you sized me up? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah for sure. What'd it's you, just natural. What do you think? Nice guy. I think he's going to be a good guy. This, this That's going to be thought. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Would yeah. you bullshit me? Would I? Yeah. No, am I bullshitting you? No, I don't think so. But would you? <laughs> no. Okay. No. And let me ask you, if I didn't come off that way, like, oh gosh, yeah, he's late. He's kind of a prick. Yeah. He's like full well, of Well, we're just going to get through this and then we're going to be done. Right, right, I right. got to get out of here. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. And that would shape your behavior throughout the conversation. Most likely, yeah. I try to be me, but yeah. maybe there's this thing that's still like in between us. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm sure you do that with CEOs basically every time they want you to advise for them or whatever it is. You want to size them up as quickly as you can. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes when I'm not sure, they'll say like at the end of the hour, like, okay, I really want to get you to join us. Or I've even had a couple already have a contract and here, just sign the contract. And I was like, whoa, hold on a second. You know what? What I think we should do is... I come back free of charge. You list like your top five or 10 issues that you think you have. And then let's do a couple hours of a working session and we see how we work together. And then after that, we can make a decision. Mm -hmm. And usually after that, I can realize like, there's no way I can ever work with this person. I need to go somewhere else. And then they call me and say, hey, I want to, what do you think? You're going to still join us? And I say like, no, I'm too busy. I took another opportunity. Mm Mm-hmm. What's something that most people think about you that you wouldn't agree with? I mean, maybe there's some people out there that think I'm a, just a hard ass. Or maybe there's some people that I let go that think whatever they want to think about me. I don't know exactly what they might think. But I would say that some people probably think that I was pretty hard, pretty much of a disciplinarian. But that was a lot of times for the people that, you know, it didn't work for. That might be the only thing that probably comes to mind. Has a CEO ever come to you and said, I think I'm done? I'm tired? No. Has that ever happened? No. Does that surprise you? No. Why not? Most of them are tech CEOs. The product, the company, everything, that's their baby. And they're not going to abandon their baby. They're just going to keep pushing on. That's what makes some of these tech founders or any founder, that you don't have to be a tech founder. Anybody that's going to start a company, 
you have tremendous passion, tremendous vision as far as what you think this thing's going to be. And you're all in. So I don't see a lot of them just saying, hey, I just don't think I can do this anymore. I just don't see it. I think it's a lot of the positive energy that we talked about earlier where they're working really hard, working 16, 18 hour days, but it's positive energy. That's their life. It's almost like a date, what you were describing, like with David Cancel. That's his life. Mm-hmm. That's where he derives his positive energy. He was doing his artwork and all that other stuff you talked about, but that's negative energy. It's not driving him. It's not getting an endorphin buzz off of that. Mm-hmm. Do you have a perspective on doubling down on strengths versus rounding out weaknesses? I believe in doubling down on the leaders around you that make up for the things that you think you're not really strong on in. That I believe in. Yeah. But that's self-awareness. That's understanding where you're strong and where you're weak Mm. and trying to get people around you that can help cover for those things. And it may not even be the people just around you. It may be a level or two down too. What about if you're coaching somebody, let's say a rep, and they are incredible at closing deals. Mm-hmm. They are the rainmaker. Yes. But they cannot work with anybody else to yes. save their life. Yes. Have had many of those. How much effort do you put into getting out everything out of their way so that they can focus on their strength, which is closing deals, versus putting in a bunch of calories to get them to play nice in the sandbox with everybody else. That's what I mean. Really good question. So I've had people that I call artists and they're people, as you described, they're amazing at closing deals. They can do things unconsciously that other reps you need to be very prescriptive to. And they'll close multi-million dollar deals. They operate at the highest levels of all these companies. They're unafraid of calling on anybody at the executive level. And they're really good, but they're artists. They don't do things the way you need the majority of your sales force to do things. So I've had conversations with them to say, look, I'm telling everybody else that they have to follow this sales process and here's the different steps and that they have to do. Here's the pipeline generation things that they have to do. All the other things that are very prescriptive and defined. Now, Between you and me, you're going to have to make like you're doing the same thing. Even though I'm giving you a get out of jail card for free and you still can be you. But you can't ever say to anybody, I don't have to do those things that McMahon's telling everybody else to do because I'm special. We don't have any special people here. We don't have any special people on this team, right? So as long as you operate within the boundaries that you and I talk about, you're free to do whatever you want to do. The minute that I hear you're telling other people that you don't have to do it, that's the day that you're going to have to, I'm going to ask you to leave. Is that fair? And they say, they're smart enough. And they say, yeah, that's fair. And they still go do their things. But for 99% of your sales force, you know, you probably have to be pretty prescriptive as to what they have, types of things that they have to do. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? When I hear the word grit, it's usually because we're talking about some people that may or may not be making it. So maybe I get called in because we have a problem in an organization. John, can you come in here and sit down with us and we'll get the leader from there. And we, the leader gets up and they talk about, let's say, 10 people that have left the company or they kicked out. Okay, why did they leave? They didn't have grit. 
Okay, great. What's grit? You get like five different answers. There's no like one answer as to what grit is. So I get frustrated by that, especially when you're going to let somebody go and you don't know specifically why, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's just like a pet peeve of mine. Because anytime you have to let somebody go, you made a mistake. Mm -hmm. You hired them. Did you hire them? Yes. Mm -hmm. Were you in charge of leading them? Yes. Were you in charge of developing them and coaching them to success? Yes. Okay. If you had to get rid of them, I need you to go down to the bathroom, look in the mirror, and come back and tell me which one of those three things did you not do right? Because you have to learn from your mistakes. You have to change your hiring profile, or you have to change your leadership style, or you have to go ahead and train and develop people better. So grit to me, the first things that come to my mind is the ability to persist you know the person has sandpaper like they have grit like they can scrounge for things they can fight for things they can be creative about coming up with solutions to problems but mainly the the main word that sticks in there is you know is persistence and like i said before like i love that terminology or acronym phd you know persistence heart and desire and that's usually what comes to mind for me when i think about grit John McMahon, officially the longest episode, 160 (laughs) in. Maybe it'll take me 160 more to get past the record. So I appreciate you and I appreciate your time. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.